Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Our speaker this morning is Todd Ormsby. Todd is a sociologist who studies both gay male culture and religion and teaches comparative religion at San Jose State University. Most recently, he has been researching people who choose to leave Mormonism and transition into some degree of unbelief. His deeper interests are in understanding how and why people change their personal religious practices and beliefs. He's especially curious about what happens to individuals as they make those religious transformations, their emotions, their day-to-day lives, their perceptions of the world, and indeed their very selves. This interest has been shaped by his own life story, being raised in the Brighamite strand of Mormonism, exploring Kabbalah in university, settling into a Buddhist Vipassana practice, and ultimately converting to Judaism. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, So I wanted to talk to you a little bit today just about uh, people who transition or change religions during their lifetime. So there's sort of two different ways to think about that. One is people who leave religion altogether. So people who were raised in a religious tradition of some sort and then at some point in their lives become irreligious or, or unreligious in some way. And then the other way to think of it is people who change religions in the course of their lifetime. So um, just as a sort of way for me to understand who you guys are, um, how many of you were raised Buddhist? (laughs) Okay, so nobody. That's actually that's surprising to me. (laughs) There's nobody. Um, They've all changed. I'm sorry. You've all changed. Another thing, even just within Buddhism, as I'm sure you guys know even better than I do, because I don't specialize in Buddhism, but that there are multiple strands within Buddhism. So in the United States, we find often that, for example, children of immigrants um, who come from a sort of traditional or folk Buddhism from their parents will then transition into a more Americanized kind of Buddhism in adulthood. So um, in all of the different sort of strands of religions, um, there are possibilities of change, right? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Um, so I was sort of thinking uh, as I was preparing today for today, just like what my academic work could bring to you guys who are um, here for Buddhist practice and, um, and for your own sort of spiritual lives and community. I'm not really sure I have an answer to that, <laughs> um, but I thought maybe that that could be a guiding question um, as I talk and as, as we sort of talk about these issues together. What, what insights do these bring to your own journeys and to your own practice um, by sort of looking um, from a social scientific perspective, if at all. Um, it definitely has affected me and my own spiritual path to be a social scientist. So maybe toward the end I could talk about that 
just a little bit. Um, the little introduction, that, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but... Wally. Wally. The little introduction Wally gave, I was like, oh, well, that's a great introduction, and then I realized I wrote it, so... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'd like to give you just a little bit more um, of some detail about me. I think, um, were this an academic setting, like, people would sort of cringe, like, oh, the scholar can't talk about himself, but... Really, what you find in, in a lot of academics, especially those of us who study other humans, is that most most of the time our personal lives and our personal experiences influence our, our academic interests. So um, as Wally mentioned, I was raised in the Brighamite strand of Mormonism. So that's the big one in Salt Lake City, the main one. And I don't know if you know, but there are lots of little small shoot-offs of Mormonism, and there are fundamentalist Mormons and all kinds of, of interesting things there. Um, and I come from a long line of Mormons. I come from people who were converted in Europe in the 1800s and came to Utah. Brigham Young hated people who couldn't speak English, so he sent them to Mexico. So my great-grandmother was a Danish-Mexican Mormon um, who was in a refugee camp in El Paso with Mitt Romney's father. <laughs> so... A uh, small world in that regard. Um, so especially in my family, there's this sort of really deep notion of, of Mormonism, and it's, and it's as much cultural and familial as it is spiritual. And um, <clears throat> I had two things going against me in Mormonism. One is that I liked little boys when I was about seven. <laughs> I was like, oh! Um, and uh, if, I don't know if you know anything about Mormonism, but that's Mormonism depends on heterosexuality. Like heterosexuality is at the center of its theology about what God is and what God means, and it's also the center. Uh, heterosexuality is at the center of salvation for Mormons. So um, I found as I got older, the second thing that was going against me is that I I'm relatively smart, and so I was questioning everything, which pissed people off. Um, I did uh, I did go on a Mormon mission and after uh, to France and after my mission I even taught at the missionary training center for three years um, and during that time it actually started when I was a missionary in France that I um, and it actually this was my first connection to Buddhism I met a guy in a park in Nice France when I was 19 years old and he was just talking about Buddhism and I went I have nothing to offer him. <laughs> I have nothing to offer him. Not not because I thought what he believed or was doing was fantastic or spiritually better or anything, but just that mine wasn't spiritually better. What I had to offer was not. So all of these things, I realize that's just kind of a little bit of a personal thing, but all of those things were sort of cracking open my view of religion, if that makes sense. Um, I wasn't... Um, I sort of, during that period of my mission, I had the exact opposite experience that most missionaries have when you study Mormon missionaries. Most Mormon missionaries get anchored in the faith, and, and one, of the, one of the ways that you can tell somebody's going to be a lifelong Mormon is whether or not they go on a mission. And I had the exact opposite happen to me. So when I was in university, um, I started exploring, exploring mysticism. Um, and so you mentioned Kabbalah. I also explored Sufism, and when I moved to Kansas City, I found a Sufi group, and like even did the Sufi dancing for a few years, which is lots of fun. I highly recommend it, by the way. Um, and um, I discovered Thich Nhat Hanh sort of by accident. And uh, I think the first book I read by him was Peace is Every Step. I don't know if any of you know that book. I was 26, I think, when I read that. Um, and then I started reading in Buddhism extensively and uh, discovered Jack Kornfield and um, a lot of the, uh, the, the Vipassana American 
uh, Goldstein, is that her name? Um, so I just discovered that, and I ended up with a sort of personal Buddhist practice um, that lasted um, to this day, actually. Um, but one of the things that's interesting that's going to hook into my academic work was that I discovered that um, I kept trying to join groups. Like, at this point, I had already left Mormonism, and I was trying to join Buddhist groups. And I, and I would have... I would go, like, I, I, joined, I joined briefly a Zen center in Lawrence, Kansas, and I found that it was suffocating. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was now, looking back on it 20 years later, I would say I, ha I was having a form of PTSD. Um, but I would literally, like, be in the room in this sort of religious context, and it was, I couldn't do it. I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was suffocating, and I ended up running out of <laughs> one time. Nobody was even hitting me, you know, in Zen. It was... Um, it was just too. It was. It was really too. Much. And, and that kind of experience is really sort of key in many people's transitions out of out of religion. And um, in the last uh, few years, I've been studying to uh, convert to a liberal rationalist uh, form of Judaism. So, and I can talk about that later. But I still practice Buddhism at home. So, one of the things, just in my personal story, that many of you might identify with is that I'm sort of an accretion or an, uh, I don't even know what you'd call that, like a blending of spiritual traditions. I'm quite um, diverse, and so I feel like I'm really anchored in Judaism, Judaism and that has really worked for me, but I, I do Buddhist sitting almost uh, at least three or four times a week. Um, and I still read widely in Buddhism, so... Um, so why the academic study of religion, and what does that get us? Because um, studying religion academically is different from a personal spiritual quest. And um, I think now, I was just talking to a friend yesterday, I think when I look back on it, I probably started studying religion academically um, to understand myself and my own experience. That's a big part of it, to understand my family. But then also to be able to have sort of a foot in religion without having to be in religion, if that makes sense. Um, one of the key things that I think the academic study of religion has to offer is its power of description. Um, to just see widely what's sort of going on in the world of religion um, and in individuals' lives. And uh, to get that sort of descriptive power, um, I find or that, to get that sort of descriptive base, I find to be then very personally empowering to sort of see clearly. And, and one of the things that I think of a lot that I really pull, pulled from Buddhism in my 20s um, is uh, awareness and presence. And uh, so the academic study of religion for me has been really that sort of ability or focus um, and awareness and presence. Um, so I'm a sociologist of religion, and what I'd like to talk to you about are two sort of sides of the sociology of religion. Um, one side is often called the macro side or the wide view or the general uh, sort of generalizations. And the other is the micro side or the individual side. Uh, and just so you sort of know where I'm going and, and where I'm coming from, um, I, I research the micro side. So I research the individual um, and the relationship of the individual to um, religion and religious groups and religious communities, if that makes sense. Um, my specialties within religion are um, actually not Eastern religion, so I don't study Buddhism in, in um, any way um, other than in sort of a general knowledge of American Buddhism and within my own practice. Um, my two areas have been conservative evangelical religion, um, which I was actually writing my dissertation about that, and 
uh, I'll just sort of give you a brief <laughs> little anecdote. I was doing interviews of gays and lesbians who were evangelical Christians, and I met a woman, a lesbian, um, whom I interviewed, and I had been doing this research maybe for four or five months, so not very long. Um, and the, I sat with her for an hour and a half, and I had only come out, I had just come out like maybe a year before, so I was sort of like freshly gay. Um, and, and she spent an hour and a half telling me how much she hated herself and how much she hated God for making her this way and how much she wished that she could like get rid of this. And I basically had a little mini nervous breakdown, and so I stopped studying conservative evangelicalism, <laughs> and I changed topics and studied gay men in the '60s. So I sort of left religion. For... <laughs> exactly. I left religion for about a decade, and I've I've just come back to religion in the last few few months. So let me just briefly talk about the macro side, and then I'll switch over to to what I really want to focus on today. So on the macro side, what you want to think about is large generalizations that you can make about either the society as a whole or then groups, um, large groups of people. So um, I don't know how many members you have here, but um, this would probably be considered too small to be a macro study. This would be a small community study, if, you know what I'm saying, if we studied this group. One of the things to really keep in mind as we have our conversation, I might, I might talk about on average Americans X, Y, or Z, and what you need to know is that that really is an average. So your personal experience might, might be set anywhere on the spectrum. And so one of the interesting things is to actually compare your individual experience to what the average is. And what I thought I would, would do to sort of frame this notion of changing religions, and it looks like everyone in the room has changed religions at least once in your lifetime. So what I like to do is just talk about three things in American religion that I think are sort of behind or support the way that Americans change religion. And, and I just want to be really clear here when I say Americans, I don't have sort of like a anti I don't even know what the word is. My, my word, when I say Americans, it's very social scientific. I basically mean anyone living in the United States. Um, so the first thing that I want to talk about is that American religion tends to be really experiential. So on average, Americans tend to relate to their religion at the level of experience. Um, what am I experiencing in the religious context? What does it feel like? when I'm practicing my religion? What does it feel like when I'm interacting with other co-religionists, other people who believe or do what I do? Um, and that goes really all the way back to the 1600s. Um, it's a really sort of old aspect of American religion. Um, and I would argue that it has something to do with the fact of people coming to the United States, and, and clearly I'm leaving out Native Americans here, so that's, I hope that's clear to you, but people coming to the United States either by force or by will, um, and being in a context where there's not religious hierarchy sort of in your face and, and creating religions out of day-to-day -day experience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that experience, that experientiality, I think, is, is really key. The second aspect of American religion that I think under, undergirds people who change religion is that American religion is really creative. Um, it's really sometimes... Um, these are sort of some sort of fancy words, but sometimes people talk about American religion as the efflorescence of religion, the sort of ooh, like uh, gaseous bubbles coming out everywhere. But it's this, uh, it's this notion that there's something about this context, the social and cultural context, that causes people to make new religions. 
um, to create something new. And it's been going on again since the 1600s. So the people who have come here have been constantly making new religions. So when I lived in France, some of you might know this joke if you ever studied French, but French people used to always, they would hear my accent, know I was American, and they'd say, oh, you're from America where you have one cheese and 10,000 churches. I am French. <laughs> <laughs> get to the punchline. I was like, <laughs> you saw where it was going. So we have, uh, we have the, just this amazing religious creativity in the United States, right? Um, so that's especially clear in Christianity, where, where in Christianity, as early as the early 1700s, when Americans would go, meh, I don't like this, they would like cross the street and get a building and start a new church. Um, and we've, as Americans, have been doing that forever. And we find that in immigrant communities as well. So um, in Mexican-American communities, for example, we find new kinds of Catholicism in the United States. Actually, Catholics in general have, have, have sort of, it's this sort of weird thing where they're all Catholic, and so it's part of this institutional church. But every parish can actually be quite different in the United States. Um, is it, are you guys following what I'm saying? So this like, really intense creativity. Um, and at the individual level, what we find are people like me, which is that I'm a blend. Like I just sort of pull from whatever is meaningful to me. So we often find that Americans will have a religious identity or an affiliation. But then when you study them at home, they're doing all kinds of other stuff too, if that makes sense. Which they often don't tell the people at church. <laughs> so their their Wicca altar is hidden. In the, <laughs> um, the third the third aspect of American religion is that um, it tends to be democratic, um, and I don't mean like the Democratic Party, and I don't mean that it's perfect or anything like that. But I'm not sure how the sangha works. But what's very common in American Buddhist Sanghas, for example, is to have a board that runs it and they vote on things. That's clearly not the traditional way. You don't have boards of people who vote, right? Um, and we find older Catholic parishes even have lay groups that run the parish and they sort of fight with the priest to keep the power out of the hands of the priest. Mm -hmm. um, we find ev evangelical Christian churches across the nation, they're run by lay, lay boards. Um, I was raised in a religion that's, that calls itself a lay religion, but it's actually extremely hierarchical. Um, so Mormonism is, and Mormonism is this weird thing because it, it was born in the United States. So they do this thing where you vote in church. Like they say this person is now going to do this job and everyone goes, yes, I, I vote to support them. But if you don't vote to support them, you get in trouble. Um, and you didn't actually pick them. So, but it has that show of democracy on the front. So this notion then that religion is for the people instead of for the hierarchy is sort of a deeply American way of looking at religion. Um, and then finally, the last thing is, the, is a notion of spirituality. So just as a, um, and again, there's no judgment or pressure here at all, but how many of you would describe yourselves as spiritual people? So that doesn't surprise me. I saw some peer pressure, like everyone raised their hand and then a few people were like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> um, that's a very American view as well, and we tend to think of it as pretty recent, sort of the Oprah Winfrey version of religion. Um, but it's actually, it actually, again, goes back to as far as the 1700s, and if you guys know who the transcendentalists were in the 1800s, this notion of having a connection with the divine or the sacred or the holy 
that's not mediated through a, a religious structure or a church or, or a hierarchy is really quite old in the United States. So those are the four aspects of American religion that I generally find support people changing religions in the United States. And, and just generally speaking, I don't know if you know this, but the United States and then also Canada, we have Canada is actually quite similar in a lot of these ways. United States and Canada are exponentially greater in their rates of people changing religion in their lifetimes. Um, than almost anywhere else in the world. Australia and New Zealand are quite high as well, but not, not as high as here. So there's something about just being in this place that makes us think we want to and can change religions. Okay. Are there any questions about any of that? Any comments? Um, okay. Um, just so you, I, I think maybe if you follow the news, you might know this. In 2007, the Pew Research Poll, um, you guys know who the Pew polls, right? So in 2007, the Pew Poll report, reported the first significant increase in people who were willing to identify as atheist or agnostic, and it was about 5% of the population, um, which in American history is massive to have 5% of the population. Americans are deeply religious, or they're afraid to say that they don't believe. So those were both possibilities. Um, and then just last year, in 2012, the Pew Research showed um, this huge increase between 2007 and 2012. Suddenly, um, and we're still trying to figure out why, people were willing to say that they're, they are unaffiliated with a religion. Um, so people under the age of 35, 30% of them say they're unaffiliated with religion. Um, so right now, what sociologists are thinking that there's probably a lot of people before that who were unaffiliated or who didn't feel a connection, but something has changed recently where people are now willing to say, I'm not religious in a hierarchical or traditional sense. Um, so all of that sort of background um, to what I wanted to say about individuals. Um, so what I wanted to do is, I'm, because I've just been studying Mormons, and I know that's really sort of off topic for a Buddhist group, um, but I wanted to talk about the individual experience of religion and changing religion, and I'm gonna do it through the lens of the people that I've been interviewing for the last couple of years. Um, so my purpose there is, be, it, well, there are two reasons. One is just because I know it the most, because it's what I'm researching. Um, but then the other purpose is to sort of give you some patterns or some things to think about in individual religious journeys or spiritual, spiritual journeys. Um, so on the micro level, when we talk about individuals, the first thing that we always keep in mind is that, is that um, although Americans tend to like to think of themselves as special snowflakes, that they do whatever they want, and uh, they're unique and individual, what, what we find when we study people empirically is that um, they're always embedded in the social context, always. And they're always, like the, the decisions that we make are always constrained by the world that we live in, by the social world we live in in some degree. It doesn't mean you can't do what you want, but it means that sometimes doing what you want is extremely difficult, if not impossible, because of the backlash of the people around you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So when we study anyone, so in your own personal journeys or when you're thinking about Buddhism or, or in my case, ex-Mormonism, what you find is that you can't really understand that individual journey without understanding the context that they're working in because the decisions they make, their religious decisions, are constrained by the people around them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, the next thing is, the, uh, is something that I call a web of meaning. Um, and this is really... <laughs> can I just ask, how many of you were raised in a religion that you... And, and of those of you who were raised in a religion, how many of you would say like the, your family was pretty practicing that, that religion like really sort of guided 
So it looks like about half of you. So I think for, especially for those of you who grew up this way, this will be sort of evident to you, but if, if you didn't grow up this way, it might just, it might be new. And that is that, um, especially if you're a child who was raised in a really practicing family, um, religion creates this sort of web of meaning that actually shapes the way our brains work. So there's a lot of research behind this. So it actually shapes, um, I'm just going to use the word perception. So it shapes the way you perceive the world. Um, and I would put this at four levels. I would say it shapes the way you perceive nature, so the biophysical world. It shapes the way you see society. It shapes the way you see the other. So think in that ethical sense, like what is another human? And it shapes the way you see yourself. Um, and we find that... Uh, uh, there's something about religious meaning, something about it, and I and I'll I, I'll tell you there are a lot of scholars who have theories about this and and who try to answer this question, but I can't say that I find any of them compelling yet. But all we know is that there's something about religious thinking that makes that perception really tight and difficult to change. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I could I could speculate about why that is, but that's just something that you that, that you have to think about. It's validated by the anthropological literature. Absolutely, absolutely. So this years. is, um, I'm because I study religion, even though I'm a sociologist, I'm pretty anchored in anthropology because there's so much crossover there, absolutely. Um, okay, so let me talk about um, ex-Mormons, or people who leave Mormonism, um, and I won't get into lots of detail here because you know, most of it <laughs> wouldn't be interesting to you. But what I want to talk about are some patterns that I have seen as I've been interviewing people who change who change from Mormonism. So just in case you don't know, Mormonism is what's often called a new religious movement. Um, sometimes it's called an alternative religion. Um, and that means that it's out of the mainstream. So that... Um, you know, you can tell that it's out of the mainstream because in the 1830s, other Americans were trying to kill them. I mean, you know, like that's the, the kind of thing that, that sort of gives it away. Um, uh, now, it's interesting today because Mormonism came up a lot when Mitt Romney was running for president, um, uh, but not as much as I actually expected it to. And so I, there's a Mormon, the, the Brighamite branch in Salt Lake City, which is what I've been studying. Um, they've been working really hard, I would say, in my lifetime, so since the 19, since about 1968, to make themselves appear American. Um, and so uh, there's this sort of, it's an alternative religion that's outside of the norm that's really trying hard to be inside of the norm, if that makes sense. And that's, that creates some dynamics for the individuals in the church who see themselves as being normal and American, but then who are confronted with kinds of prejudice on, on a daily basis often. So when I was a kid, I grew up in rural Oregon, and when I was a, a kid, I would often have to cross picket lines to get into church because the local evangelical churches were out front, like, you know, double worshipers and with their <laughs> and, um, that kind of a thing. Um, and I'm not trying to, uh, well, I, won't say, I was going to say something mean about Mormons, but I won't. Um, so there are three... Uh, three processes that people that I've interviewed go through as they leave Mormonism. Um, and one is a, a knowledge-based process. Um, and that is the, uh, in the Christian tradition, 
it's really, and Mormonism is, is from the Christian heritage. Um, whether or not it's Christian, you could have that argument some other time. But it's absolutely historically from the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition, what you believe matters, right? So in the Christian tradition, you have to believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus is how you're saved. So there's this really intense notion of belief in Christianity. And I often find that Americans make the mistake of saying that in all religions, it's about what you believe, because that's actually not true. That notion of belief is really Christian. It's a deeply Christian notion. And in Mormonism, there's even these social processes where you get up in front of the congregation and declare your belief. Um, and, and if you don't believe what you're supposed to believe, social interventions happen. They're informal. They're not part of the structure, but people will talk to you. They'll be concerned about what they call your testimony. Um, they will try to help you do the right thing so that you believe the right things. Uh, because if you have questions or doubts, then that's a problem. And that is interpreted. If you do have questions or doubts, it's interpreted as an individual failing. Mm-hmm. That the reason you don't believe is because you have sinned, basically. Okay? So that first issue there for Mormons of leaving was that knowledge. That they had to give up the notion that they had to believe in Mormonism. Does that make sense? And what they did believe, they had to give up the belief. So whatever it was that they believed in Mormonism, they had to give it up. So I would like to sort of focus this on a more general way, so like outside of the Mormon context, and say that it, they had to change their knowledge base. They had to change what they perceived to be true about the world. So those four things I gave you, the world, society, the ethical other, and themselves. Their knowledge about those four things had to shift. The fastest shift that I encountered in my research was a guy who shifted. It took two weeks. Um, he was he was serving in a bishopric in the Mormon Church, so he was a hierarch. He was just sort of truck, trucking along. He and his wife had a few kids, and his something had happened to his dad. His dad had been duped um, by some guy, and for some reason, in this guy's head that I interviewed, he's like, "Well, if dad could be duped by a Ponzi scheme, what else could he be duped by?" And he started questioning everything that his father had taught him. And two weeks later, he was an atheist. <laughs> um, that was the fastest, though, I have to say. Like, for most of the people, the vast majority of the people I've interviewed, it took a long time. It was a very difficult process to change that perceptive, their, their, their perceptive world, to change their brains. Um, so the longest I encountered was seven years, but the average was about three years. Okay. Any questions about that? So changing knowledge, changing, changing your perception of the world. The second thing um, is a question of ethics. Um, See where I am on time. Okay. So uh, I think that this would be different depending on the religion you're you're raised in. Um, For Mormons, there's this really intense notion that that your ethical world is supposed to act the way you think Jesus would act. Um, And in every single person I have interviewed, every single one of them, they said that the thing that bothered them, that hooked them to think about Mormonism was that the Mormon church didn't act the way they think Jesus would act. And so it was this kind of contradiction where they had been taught their whole lives a system of ethics, but they found that the community that they were in violated those ethics. Does that make sense? Um, 
I, when I stand back from Mormons and I look across the board, so I've, I've been doing a little bit of reading lately on people who leave fundamentalist evangelicalism, and they say the exact same thing, mm-hmm. exact same thing, um, that, they, that they had this notion of what it meant to be a good person, what it meant to have compassion, what it meant to love other people, and that the religious structures that they were part of, they felt were doing the exact opposite. They were doing harm. Um, so I think that that's, even though I'm studying Mormonism, I think that that's common, especially in the Christian religions. Um, I haven't studied outside of the Christian religions tradition who leaving church, uh, leaving a religion, but my, my sense is that you would always find ethics somewhere in the equation of people changing religion. Are there questions about that? So I kind of have a sub-point here, which is something called religious trauma syndrome. Have any of you guys heard of this? Mm-hmm. So it's called religious trauma syndrome. Um, it was identified by, um, I didn't write her name down, I think it's Dr. Wayland. she's here in San Francisco, um, in, her, in her private uh, therapy practice. She identified this um, by working with people who had come out of evangelical Christianity. Excuse me. Um, and the, her, just, I'm just going to give you sort of a very brief idea. And some of you, this might sort of resonate with your own experiences growing up. She found that for people who were raised in a, two things, authoritarian religions, so religions with a very intense top-down power structure, and people who were raised in conformist religions, where, the, where there's an intense social pressure to conform, to be like everyone else. Um, that those people were susceptible to what she has called religious trauma syndrome. Um, just so you know, just to sort of qualify this because I'm a scholar, so I'm kind of anal about this, um, it's, this is sort of a very new idea, and so I'm not, there's very little research behind it at this point. Um, but the reason why I bring it up is because after I read her work and went back to the ex-Mormons I was studying, at least half of the people that I interviewed were, study, were suffering from a, some sort of a psychological disturbance um, because of their upbringing in Mormonism. Um, they had been, um, and it's hard to describe because it's not like they were abused, like they weren't beaten or, do you know what I'm saying? Or they, they, they weren't sexually molested. I did, I did interview one woman who had been um, sexually molested um, in the church, in a church context. Um, but something about that authoritarian structure created <clears throat> symptoms that are quite like PTSD. Um, and so after I read Dr. Whalen's work and then I went back to look at the people I had interviewed, I found that her sort of her categories for how to identify it were quite evident in the research that I have. So it's not social scientists right now aren't talking about psychological trauma as a reason people leave religion. Um, but I have a strong sense that that's going to sort of rise in the converse, in the academic conversation in the next few years. Does that makes sense, yeah. Why wouldn't psychological trauma be a result of leaving the religion? It often is, actually. So um, I wasn't going to talk about that, but that's a great question. Um, so for Mormon, I'll just talk about ex-Mormons specifically because that's what I know the best. So for the people who left Mormonism specifically, again. This is why I made a big deal out of Mormonism being an alternative or a new religious movement. It's socially very insular. So your entire social world is usually Mormon. Um, all day Sunday, activities all week long, daily things that you're supposed to do. It's an intent, like if you're a practicing uh, religious Mormon, it's all of your free time, basically. It's all of your social world. And so when they left, every single person that I interviewed had 
depression, mm -hmm. um, feelings of disconnection, feelings of um, communal loss. Um, many of them described it as mourning a death. Mm -hmm. um, they knew that they had to leave, that they couldn't stay, but it was traumatic to leave. But, but they were shunned, right, in, in Mormonism or not? No. So uh, if, this, if this were the 1800s, yes, <laughs> they would have been in the 1800s. So some families do reject. Um, so I interviewed one man who, who came out to his wife that he didn't believe anymore. She called his parents and told him his parents flew to Texas took his wife and children, gave her money to pay the divorce lawyer, and took them back to Utah. Um, so it does happen, but it, it was the exception rather than the norm. It's not official policy. No. And in, so there is a process. So they don't call it shunning. They call it excommunication. So uh, same thing, right? <laughs> Those technical terms, right? Um, so there is official shunning that does happen, but I'm talking about people who choose to leave rather than people who are forced to leave. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> uh, because the people who choose to leave are punished. By They're by not. Excommunication. They're actually not. They're not. In order to be excommunicated, you either have to do something that the church doesn't like or you have to ask for it. So I asked to be excommunicated. But the church wouldn't come down on your family. Uh, my parents not communicate with you. No, no, no. And but in fact, go along with your. We could come. Yeah, yeah, questions. absolutely. That's great. Great. I, I had a. Oh, I think you answered my question about the hierarchical thing. And the Catholic Church is very hierarchical too. But within the Catholic Church, the a lot of the Catholic Christians just ignore. What yeah, the yeah. The Catholic Church is much less conformist. Right. Yeah. And, and there's they put the popes in hell. <laughs> right. In religious practice, in, in religions in general, there's always a dynamic between the religious structure and then what people actually do. And that's always intention. Does that make sense? There's always a tension there. So I wanted to give you one last thing to talk about, and then um, I could take a few more questions if you want. And that is something that surprised me in my research. And actually, I thought I would be done with this like a year ago. And, and I discovered this, this piece, and it actually stopped me in my tracks. And, it, and so I've gone back, and I've been spending the last year trying to figure that out. And that is the centrality of emotion to the process of leaving religion. Um, what I haven't yet figured out is if this is particular to Mormonism or if it's in general. So what I'm going to do is to just describe to you the dynamic that I have found, and then you guys can think about your own experiences and see if this maps onto other kinds of changing, other kinds of religious experiences outside of Mormonism. So what I found was that um, within Mormonism, emotions are really important because if you're a Mormon, emotions tell you whether or not you're feeling the spirit of God. Mm. So, and it, they do two things for you. One is that your emotions tell you whether or not you're righteous or worthy. And the other thing is that emotions tell you whether or not something is true or false. Um, so, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I appreciate giggling. Um, it's a, uh, so that's the particular Mormon way of framing emotions. But I find as I'm looking at other religions that all religions have ways of telling you or framing what an emotion is. So th this is a very sort of surface level example, but just to sort of cue you in that like in Vipassana in the practice, you observe your emotions, right? So you separate from your emotions, your, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a way of framing emotions and understanding them. So I, I, I think that most religions do this. 
Um, and what I found when I was interviewing um, these people who left Mormonism was that they were obsessed with emotions. Um, and I really wasn't expecting that at all. So all of them were talking about how it felt. So when they talked about why they didn't believe in Mormonism anymore, it was always framed in terms of how they felt. When they were talking about um, where how they knew that what was happening either to them or to other people within the Mormon frame was wrong was because of how they felt. And what I found was that this three-year process that, that you asked about earlier, that in this process that people had of transitioning out of Mormonism or leaving Mormonism, that the main work that they were doing was redefining the meaning of their emotions. Um, and so in the, at least in that ex-Mormon context, just remember it, I'll open you up to questions in just a sec. At least in that Mormon context, emotions are really central to the experience of changing religions. Um, I can't speak for outside of that context, but my, my hunch is because religions almost always give you a way of making sense of emotions, mm -hmm. that changing religions would always entail changing the way you, you feel, changing your, emotional, your emotionality is what we call it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, just to sort of bridge us into a question and answer period, I think the big question that I would pose to you is, so what, um, as a group of gay men practicing Buddhism together, and I don't know, do you follow a particular Buddhist tradition or is this kind of an ecumenical sangha? So as gay, gay men practicing various strands of Buddhism, and that's a very American way of organizing a sangha, by the way, um, what does this mean, what does this, this sort of information about people leaving religions give you in that spiritual Buddhist path um, that you have? And we don't even have to address that question, but it's just sort of the, the question that I think um, could sort of put an exclamation point at the end of what I have to say. So. I'd be happy to answer questions or take comments, so how about if I just go this way around the room? <laughs> so, sorry. Okay. Uh, I'll try to be brief so that I can get as many of you as possible. So I really appreciated how you defined the, the issue of faith being a particularly Christian. My friend Sandy Lowe, who was a rabbi and a biblical scholar, said that was exactly how the religion got started. When Paul couldn't convert Christians because they didn't want to get circumcised. Like didn't want to, he couldn't convert Greeks because the thought of marring their body was so... And it, it strikes me, though, that... Um, that it is very Christian because in both Judaism and from what I've seen in Buddhism, it, you take, it takes a long time before you, before you have to believe something. You can practice for years and then you learn that there are some things that you should believe, but it's not critical to practice. And I'm wondering if that might be one reason why um, many Jews and Buddhists can add their practice to their, their back religion, yeah. the religion they were grown up in. So I'm going to speak actually at a higher level than that, and, and that is that Christian, so it's weird because I'm going to use words that we use in really different ways in, stand, in, you know, in our day-to-day -day conversation. Christianity is orthodox, which means right belief. Mm. Um, I think, and I'm, I hesitate to say this so you correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think that there's a lot of that in Islam as well. Oh, that, there are, that there are things that you must believe. I'm sorry? In Islam, In Islam yeah. Um, but many world religions, many religions around the world are orthopraxic, which are right practice or right action. Um, and those are actually quite different types of religion. So, um, Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I just am curious when we talk about emotions and how that affects all this. Uh, two, two items. One is when all of a sudden uh, the teaching was that black people are no longer the descendants of Cain and horrible mm -hmm. and all that, and all of a sudden somebody said it's okay. And then secondly, the you mean in the Mormon context? Yes, the yeah. Mormon context. Because Southern Baptists still believe that. And, so. and second is um, the emo how emotions were affected when, during the AIDS epidemic, a lot of people came down with AIDS, and that's the first time their families found out they were gay mm -hmm. and had AIDS and acceptance and hate mm -hmm. and disassociation, how that all played in with the emotions yeah. and yeah. family dynamics. So family dynamics, so let me talk about it sort of within the church and then family really quickly. So I'm going to focus on the Mormon context. And if you guys, if you go, if you don't know, Mormonism has a very sort of sorted past with race. Mm -hmm. um, and in its, in its first 20 years or so, it was, it was abolitionist. Um, and they allowed African-American converts. I don't want to say it wasn't racist because it was very much a, of its time. It was very much the 1830s and 40s, right? Um, Brigham Young, when they came to Salt Lake City, said enough of that. Um, Brigham Young was actually driven into Salt Lake Valley by a slave. Um, and uh, and so at that point, basically, it became Mormon teaching that... Um, so it's not... The descendants of Cain thing is more of an evangelical idea. The Mormon idea is that um, African Americans were um, less... So I'm going to use the Mormon words, and I don't know if they'll make sense to you. They were less valiant in the pre-existence. So, <laughs> so, Unlike the Samoans. Exactly, because Samoans are Native Americans. They're, they're Jews. Um, by, uh, to Mormons, I'm not saying they actually are. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so the idea was that um, the way Brigham Young taught it was that uh, people, people with dark skin, before we were born on earth, we, there, we either chose to follow Jesus or to follow Satan. So the idea was if you had dark skin, you followed Jesus, but you didn't really want to. Um, and then you were born and your, your body was marked so that people could see you, that your spirit was less righteous. That includes Southern Italians. It, um, it, actually, it actually does. So um, what, happens is, what happened within Mormonism in the, in the 1970s, so in 1978, the leader of the church, his name was Spencer Kimball, he said, we're done with that practice. There's no, there are no differences between people with dark skin and people with light skin, and they can have the full full participation in the church. And um, their uh, splinter groups broke off. People left the church over it. Um, people's identities were deeply, deeply rooted in racism, um, except for younger people. So in the 1960s, younger Mormons, um, actually here in the Bay Area, were fighting against the church to change those policies and beliefs. Um, and they sort of then celebrated when the church finally did. Um, the gay thing is very difficult. So even I went to Brigham Young University in 1988, and even when I was there, um, the university was still forcing gay people to have aversion therapy. So um, clearly I did not come out at BYU. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there, uh, it, so it's, it's very difficult. Um, I would say your question of shunning, they absolutely shunned gay people. And um, that didn't change until about 1998. Um, Gordon B. Hinckley, then the leader of the church, told parents to stop shunning their gay children. Um, so that's probably more detail. The, the authoritarian thing is that if, if, if the president of the church says something, it just 
it does. Automatically goes. But but I do have to say that that because there's always a difference between what people do and what the authority says, that there are still Mormon families that reject their children, and and before that there were Mormon families who did not. So um, my parents did not shun me when I came out. Well, just as a contrast to the experience of American religions, like I grew up in Lebanon, where oh, cool. it's a confessional country, your religion is on your passport yeah, okay. and your name. If your name is Ahmad, you could be a fundamentalist Baptist. Everyone sees you as a as a Muslim. It's like your race. You can't change your race. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's who you are, it's who your ancestors are, and it's how you're seen. And it affects right. whether you can go to political yeah. office, whether you're going to be stopped at a roadblock, right. etc. It has nothing right. to do with your yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting contrast that, um, that in, not in all places outside of the United States, but, but often outside of the United States, religion and ethnicity are, are, mm-hmm. are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that made the U.S. different 400 years ago was people disarticulating religion from ethnicity. Um, so that's a really key, key, key shift in, in the American context, yeah. Thanks. Can I... Well, I was brought up with a Mormon, and um, I was uh, left the church when I was in my teens. But um, it's interesting. I don't think I was shunned I, because even to this day, Mormons don't believe in homosexuality, so they look at me as being mentally ill. Mm. And it's a sick your family, thing. you mean? Yeah, even to this day, mm. and um, I recognize that there is a lot of psychological trauma for me. And what drew me to Buddhism was that it's very scientific. Mm. And so it's a secular Buddhism that appeals to me, not the capital B Buddhism, because I still don't like that. Mm. Uh, I like the idea of meditation being a scientific process. So uh, it's interesting to me what you're talking about today. Yeah. So more about the practice for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes back to your, your very opening, so it's not really the central theme of your research, which I think is wonderful. Uh, when you were talking about religion in America, uh, about it being, if I remember correctly, new, democratic, and a blend, uh, first of all, I, I was playing the disturbed to realize that I was average. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a special snowflake. But, <laughs> but af- after that, what struck me is that uh, in the context of America, so this is more about America than religion, but it, it seems to me a simple characteristic of the country is that it's entrepreneurial and that the description of religion is another example of that. And I just wondered if that was something that had... Uh, so that would probably... The word that I used was creative, so that's yeah. probably where you're hooking in there, where I really... So I'll kind of be a San Franciscan for a minute. Like, I really get uncomfortable with capitalist metaphor. So <laughs> it's a, But yeah, I think, that, I think I'm seeing the same thing, and I just called it creativity. But a lot of small churches are small businesses. Absolutely, yeah. And it's structured that way because because the way the U.S. structures tax codes and things like that. Absolutely. So the technically, the Mormon church is actually the corporation of, or it's the corporation of the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's actually a corporation. So. 
Are you guys a corporation? One time I was Catholic and a Mormon missionary called and wanted to come and talk to the children at the children's home. And I asked him, I said, well, I'm Catholic, I'll be saved. And he says, well, you'll be, uh, you'll be resurrected and glorified, but we'll be sanctified. And I'm thinking, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. So they so, don't actually I don't know if that would be interesting to everyone, but I'd be glad to talk to you about yeah, Mormon. Yeah. That's called soteriology, which is the idea of how you're saved. Okay. And Mormons have like a whole, <laughs> it's why most Christians go, because <laughs> Mormons have a whole different view of what that means. Yeah. I don't know if you have some uh, uh, characteristics of people who are not raised Mormon who then go into the Mormon church. Yeah, so conversion is um, a different path. So I research people who leave who leave religion um, rather than, than their process of coming into a new one, if that makes sense. Um, very generally speaking, those things that I talked about with people leaving, think of the mirror side of them as why people come in. So they're looking for truth. They're looking for um, ethical community and belonging. And they're looking for emotional stability. Structure. Structure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I'm not, I'm not clear on the time, but it's 11.55. So yeah, maybe one more. One more question? Yeah. Well, the issue of revelation is great. Uh, important in Mormonism too. Mm -hmm. It exists in Christianity and Judaism too, but the revelation goes back thousands of years where it's Mormonism is still 100 years old. So, 107. Or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Hi, so can I just ask you? My neighbor. Yes, I you don't know anything about each other. Now you know lots about me. And I want to know a little bit more. So, can you tell me a little bit more about your evolution? From Buddhism to Judaism now. So, what, what is it about that? Yeah, well, in like one minute or less. Special snowflake. I, I. I think it's sort of easier to just sort of talk about my values. So, um, I'm, I, I'm an atheist. I would say. Um, I would say, um, but I, it's very American. I'm an atheist, but I'm spiritual. Um, I have I have really sort of profound experiences. So it's about being in my body and being in the world and um, having these kinds of experiences. Um, I think the shortest answer, because that's like a, such a long question. You, I'm like a deer in headlights with that question. But the short answer is that I was really craving community, and I was really I was crea craving community, and I was crea craving conversation and debate. And I was craving the way, like, what really drew me into Judaism is that it's just built into the culture that there isn't, like, this answer. Instead, you sit around and argue about it. Mm -hmm. um, and as an academic, that really appealed to me. But then, <laughs> but then with this, like, really old structure of practice, um, and that it didn't, like you mentioned earlier, it doesn't conflict with my already existing Buddhist practice, so... How do you convince French people to give up cigarettes and coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't at all. Thank you very much for letting me come and talk to you. Are there any announcements? Continuing to work on a roster update. So if you have any address changes or phone number changes, if you can make it on this paper document, which I would leave by the sign-in sheet, that would be great. Thank you. Any other? 
And we have a host. Yes. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. yeah, for a question. It's either next week or the week after. Spirit Rock is having Earth Day celebration. And uh, if any of you have never been there, it's a real good opportunity to spend the afternoon or the day there. On the beautiful land, they have almost every teacher that's in town is mm -hmm. going to be there. So you get to see all these famous uh, respected teachers. And just to be on the land, it, it should be quite a nice activity. Spirit Rock. Where is Spirit Rock? It's in Marin County. Okay. How far from here? Well, uh, 45 minutes. It's on the way to Mirror Woods. And it's just a spectacular place, and it's our type of uh, practice. Aren't there parking restrictions? I mean, no, I mean, you go. I think they encourage you to uh, carpool, but there's they have lots a place of for all the cars. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. If a person wants to go and they don't have a car, is there any way? Uh, they have a bulletin board to pick you up anywhere. Oh. People do that. It's very okay. good. And the bulletin board is where? Part of your website? To the or Spirit Rock. Rock. Oh, just Google Spirit Rock okay. and you'll find it. Okay. <clears throat> um, so I'm your host, and so help yourself to treats. If you drink any tea, you can just uh, place your cup in the soapy water and I'll wash it to save water. And uh, we have a sign-up list right to the right. And um, some of us go to lunch afterwards, like about 12.30, just meet out in front. And um, some of will be coming around with the dining bowl, so uh, be as generous as possible. Thank you. Names. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm new at this, and I, what I neglected to do was, we, it's our custom to go around and introduce ourselves. So, uh, my name is Wally. Douglas. Alan. Lies. Fred. Justin. Mark. Dan. Harley. My name is Philip. Kenny. Paul. Paul. David. Michael. Scott. My name is Kat. I'm Jack. I'm Bob. My name is Ray. I'm Shantan. Peter. Lee. David. Jess. Jose. And Jeffrey. Mike. I'm Michael. <coughs> Al. I'm Joe. Max. Doug. I'm Al. My name is Jeff. My name is Brian. Anthony. Anthony. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Would you uh, join me in for a closing? By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.